Welcome to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon preached by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled, All That Glitters Isn't Gold. It's based on Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14, the story of when the Israelites made an idol for themselves and God and Moses' response to that act. We hope that you'll enjoy this sermon. We find the protagonist, Walter White, alone and sweating in the New Mexico desert. And a spoiler alert, if Breaking Bad is still on your list of TV shows to watch, you may just want to put your fingers in your ears right now, or online worshipers, you can forward to the prayers and the offertory. Um, Anyway, Walter's alone and sweating in the desert, not because it's a particularly hot day, but because he's rolling a 55-gallon drum full of cash across the desert floor, about a million dollars, all told. While the song by the folk group, the Limelighters, is playing, times are getting hard, boys. Money's getting scarce. Times don't get no better, boys. Gonna leave this place. Take my true love by her hand. Lead her through the town. Say goodbye to everyone. Goodbye to everyone. What in the world is going on? Well, to answer that question, you have to go back to the beginning of the series. At the beginning, Walter White is a sad sack, middle-aged chemistry teacher who's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he has no health insurance. So to pay his medical bills, he puts his chemistry knowledge to use cooking crystal meth with the help of a former student, a waster named Jesse Pinkman. And as his meth business takes off, Walter sheds his sad sack personality and assumes a new personality, that of a ruthless killer. And by the end of the series, Walter has become the king of the Southwest drug trade. Now, it's not as though Walter White had no other choice but to become a drug trafficker in order to meet his deductibles. Early on, a college friend comes to him, knows that he's sick with cancer, and offers him a job, pretty lucrative position in his company, with benefits. But Walter says no, because he's holding a grudge against this old college friend, and because, hey, he's learned that he's pretty good at cooking crystal meth. And he's kind of proud of the product that he's putting out on the street, and wants to develop this new business for himself. Well, pride goes before fall. The walls close in on Walter White. His family becomes aware of this bizarre double life that he's leading. One of his family members, his brother-in-law, Hank, happens to be a DEA agent. And Hank cracks this drug ring led by Walter White. He gets Jesse, Hank's partner, to flip. And he drives out into the desert to confront Walter, where Walter has buried his millions of dollars in barrels. Problem is... He's also confronted at the same time by this ruthless gang who's been distributing Walter's money. And they decide to kill Hank. They take Jesse hostage to get him to make enough for themselves. And they take off with all the money. Not all the money. As a gesture of goodwill, they leave one barrel, one million dollars for Walter, and a car that has been shot up and is nearly empty of gasoline. And that's why we find Walter White rolling a barrel of cash through the lonely desert while the limelighters sing. Only 
he hasn't taken his true love by his hand in the way that the limelighters were singing about. There's no woman who's holding hands with Walter. It's that money in that barrel that his hands are pushing that is his true love. Now, the creators of Breaking Bad have said that the overall message of this series is that actions have consequences. That's true. At the same time, I see another theme at work in the show, and it's this. It's how when we are anxious about situations that seem to be beyond our control, and we turn to money and to power to solve those situations and alleviate our anxieties, apart from any moral code or relationship with God, we bring disaster on ourselves and on other people. Breaking Bad, in short, is a TV show about idolatry, about misplaced trust, and how the idols we bow down to in times of stress and anxiety fail to deliver for us and weary us to the bone. I found myself thinking about Walter White's absurd barrel roll this week as I was reading and reflecting on the creation of the golden calf by the Israelites in the Sinai Desert. The Israelites are anxious about their survival. Their leader, Moses, has gone up Mount Sinai into the presence of God, uh, into this devouring flame and fire at the summit of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments the code for how the Israelites will live in the promised land. But he's been gone a while. Forty days, the scripture says. And the Israelites are alone and breath of a leader, they get worried. Their anxiety grows and grows and they decide to do something about it when the uncertainty becomes unbearable. They go to Aaron. They appoint Aaron to be their new leader and they ask Aaron to make gods who will go before them. You see, uh, we all need a symbol to rally around, and they need some sort of tangible sign of God's presence, or the divine presence. And so Aaron asks for their jewelry, and he melts it down, and he casts it in the mold of a calf. Now, while Aaron seems to understand the calf as an image of the God who has led them thus far, the people take to worshiping the calf as though it were a deity itself. And the worship service is followed by a fellowship meal, and it seems like in the course of the fellowship meal, somebody broke into the wine, and then things got really out of hand. Really out of hand. Now, then and now, uh, bulls and bull calves are symbols of power and potency. That's what we want from our gods. That's what we want from our gods. We want power and potency, both the Israelites of old and people today. We want a God who will protect us from harm, and we want a God who will provide abundantly for us. Now, in fact, this is exactly who the Lord God has been for the people of Israel. God protected them from the Egyptians, brought them through the Red Sea, and brought the waters back on the Egyptian army. And God has been providing for them food to eat in the desert, manna from heaven. But there's more to the Lord God than protection and provision. God wants an exclusive, committed relationship with God's people. And God wants Israel to be exclusively focused on the well-being of their neighbors. 
That is what God is revealing to Moses on Mount Sinai when God gives these Ten Commandments to Moses. The commandments teach us how to love God with our whole being. They teach us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. They teach us, in short, how to be responsible with God's gifts of protection and provision. God to bestow wealth and power without limits or without guidelines, they're irresponsible gods. They're like parents who give their children a chemistry set for Christmas and then walk away and let them play with it by themselves. They, these kids are going to grow up to be Walter White. Or they might grow up to be some uh, lower profile, less cartoonish version of Walter White. The gods they serve lead them to rack and ruin while they take other people along with them. Now, God is also up on the mountain instructing Moses about how to build a tabernacle. In fact, the, uh, the chapters and verses between last week's scripture reading and this week's scripture reading, uh, they're kind of boring unless uh, you are one of those people who likes to watch those home improvement shows, in which case you might enjoy all of the uh, details about how they're to decorate the tabernacle and furnish it and everything. But the tabernacle is going to be a place where God will descend and be present to the Israelite people. The very divine presence the Israelites craved in their anxiety and their impatience, God is showing Moses how God is going to be present to them. But in their impatience and in their anxiety, they make a God for themselves who will be near to them, rather than waiting on God to be revealed to them in a time and in a place and by means that God has approved. What I wonder is, when I read this story, how is this golden calf supposed to go before them? They want a God who's going to go before them. How is this golden calf going to go before them? You know, to, uh, to paraphrase the psalm that we opened our worship service with, this golden calf has a mouth, but it can't move. It has a tail, but can't swish it. It's got legs, but they can't walk. The only way that this God is going to go before the Israelites is if they haul it up, put it in a cart, and drag it across the desert, or push it, like Walter White, pushing his God of millions of dollars. And that's the thing about false gods and idols. They promise to deliver you, but you wind up having to deliver them. Idols are exhausting. Choosing another God will wear you out. And it will provoke the true God to righteous fury. Go down at once, Moses says. I mean, the Lord says to Moses, Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. I don't mean to make fun of divine anger, but I can't help but notice that uh, the Lord here sounds a little bit like your mom when you were misbehaving all day and your mom went and met your dad at the front door. You won't believe what your kids have done this afternoon. The Lord wants to be left alone so that this anger that's smoldering can burst into a conflagration that will consume the Israelites. Now, I don't know if the Lord is planning to hurl fire and brimstone down on the Israelite people or maybe... God intends for Israel to be consumed in some other way. Maybe God wants to be left alone 
so that Israel can go on its own way and eventually be consumed in the desert. Let them find out for themselves if that golden calf can feed them in the wilderness. At any rate, the Lord God sounds not just like a mother who is at her wit's end with her disobedient children. The Lord also sounds like a jilted lover. This relationship is over. Or is it? Why does your anger burn hot against your people whom you brought out of Egypt, Moses asked? Your people whom you brought out of Egypt? Moses gently reminds the Lord that the Israelites are mom's kids, too. Moses points to that third commandment chiseled in stone. Right here it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You care about your good name. What are they going to say about you if you wipe out your own people? What are the neighbors going to say? What are the Egyptians going to say? And then finally Moses reminds the Lord of the promise that God made to Abraham. That God would multiply Abraham and Sarah's children like the stars in the sky, like the grains of sand by the seashore. And a promise is a promise, isn't it? God is furious. Yet, for the sake of God's own good name, and in keeping with God's own reliable character, God decides not to disown or disavow God's own yet disobedient people. And what is true of God's relationship with Israel is true of our relationship with God as well. We who, through faith in Jesus Christ, have become members of the household of God and children of God. In the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For God cannot deny himself. Now, I imagine that there are as many worries and anxieties in this house of worship today as there are people. Even more, because we have people worshiping with us online. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe you're worried about your kids, about your aging parents. Maybe you're worried about war in the Middle East, war in Europe, domestic political turmoil. In times of high anxiety, the false gods call to us. Bow before us. We can manage your problems for you. But all that glitters is not gold. The trouble that the gods take with one hand, they give back in spades with the other. God knows that the poor need greater resources. And the powerless need more power. What we all need rich, poor, and middle class, blue-collar and white-collar, Americans and Latin Americans, Russians and Ukrainians, Israelis and Palestinians, what the world needs is the Lord our God, who frees slaves, who feeds the hungry, who raises the dead, and calls all people to love God with every fiber of their being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why, in this stewardship season, we ask you to commit your time and your treasure to the church. Because God is calling you to commit. I want to share something a little bit new with you this week. Uh, our stewardship committee 
is asking you for $10 more a week in 2024. That's $40 more a month. That's uh, two pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks per week. Okay. So if you didn't get anything in 2023, give two pumpkin spice lattes per week in 2024. If you did give in 2023, thank you. And we ask you to give that much more, or if you were in the capacity to give more, increase it a little bit more. Now, $10 more a week isn't an arbitrary number. It represents the gap between what we believe God is calling us to do to glorify God and to love our neighbors and the resources we have on hand to do it. The church needs you to make this commitment. But you need to make this commitment more than the church does. Growing your nest egg and climbing the career ladder won't save you from what keeps you up at night. But if we commit ourselves to glorify God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we commit ourselves to loving our neighbors as ourselves, then God's protection and provision will follow. For as Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and God's moral order and all of these other things will be added unto you. In the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.